This is Sober Company, a podcast about modern sobriety and empowered recovery. My name is Lacey. My name is Nick. And today we are talking to Megan Hetfield. Megan is a peer recovery support specialist and certified recovery peer advocate and also a harm reductionist. So we've been wanting to talk to Megan about harm reduction ever since she introduced the topic to Nick and I about over a year ago now. And I mean, in my understanding, harm reduction is very centered in respecting and empowering the person who uses substances. So we talked to her about what exactly harm reduction is and what it looks like in practice. And we also talked about harm reduction meetings called Harm Reduction Works. And we also talk about why abstinence isn't always the goal for everybody and how harm reduction has played a role in our own recoveries. Yeah, it was a great conversation. We also talked about Megan's own path in recovery, uh, including her role as a peer support specialist and how you can find one. And just a heads up that harm reduction includes the conversation around substance use as part of recovery. And we know that can be controversial. So please just know what's best for you here. Uh, It was a great conversation and we hope you enjoy it. Megan, so happy to have you on Sober Company. I'm really excited to be here. It's really good to see you guys. Yeah, same. We met... It's over a year now at the New York State Recovery Conference, Um, and I think we were introduced because you also have some roots in the Buddhist recovery universe, right? Yes, yes. I uh, was involved with refuge recovery for a a little while um, and then pivoted to recovery dharma. Right. Um, Actually hosted some refuge recovery meetings in my area and found a lot of support and a lot of like-minded folks um, in that community, some of which we had in common. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, but we've brought you on here. So what are you up to today? Why don't you tell us, you know, kind of at, at that point, I know you were, you were working with people as a peer recovery specialist. Um, what are you, what are you doing now? Yeah, so I'm still working as a peer I'm a peer recovery support specialist, and right now I'm working for a national company called We Connect Health Management, Um, and it's actually an app that people can access through their phone, and it's based off something called contingency management, um, which is basically rewards-based, so folks can meet with a peer, get support around whatever healthy change that they're looking to make, Um, so it's it's their self-determined goal. Um, and I just kind of help them figure out some, some goals that make sense. That'll help advance them towards whatever it is they're trying to achieve. And they get rewarded with Amazon gift cards for, you know, uh, for achieving those goals, whether Mm -hmm. it's just like going to the gym every day, you know, making whatever group they think is going to be helpful for them every day, um, meeting with their therapist, um, going to their doctor, uh, you know, all the things that they identify as like smart goals for themselves, um, are rewarded through the app and it's going to be uh, built through insurance and folks can access it um, the same way they would, um, you know, outpatient services. And it can work really well, like in tandem with outpatient. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a really robust uh, re- support system. We're also hosting seven online recovery support meetings a day. Um, that are available, not just to our members, but anyone can come. I mean, we've got like some of the meetings I host have like 120 people from all over the world. Um, It's been really exciting, like watching how many people are accessing the online recovery supports after COVID, after all their Mm -hmm. local meetings were shut down. You know, they just pivoted naturally. We just found our tribe, you know, we all went online and yeah. So it's been, it's been really, it's been really amazing. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. I think, well, when we met you, when Nick and I met you at the New York State Recovery Conference, um, I think this is kind of embarrassing for me to say, but I think you, you explained what you were doing there, which was talking, were you talking, did you have a panel about um, harm reduction? Yeah. So we were, uh, we were going to be hosting harm reduction works meetings. Okay. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And so I remember that was the first time I'd heard that term and you explained it to me. And ever since that moment, I understood my recovery in a totally different way. I used to be really ashamed of the fact that I used 
cannabis, weed, um, when I first got sober, you know, when I first stopped drinking, I started smoking weed and I was always ashamed of that and I didn't talk about it. And after hearing you explain the concept of harm reduction, I was able to kind of see that experience of mine in a completely new light and, and see that I was actually taking care of myself instead of having this shameful thing that I, you know, is still using something for like a year and a half after stopping drinking. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. And I also remember at that, at that conference, did, did something happen where people were walking out of one of your? Yeah. So, okay. So before the actual conference, there was a pre recovery conference that was open to certified recovery peer advocates and different peers in the state um, to come for free for like a half a day of training. And I did a training on harm reduction. And I have a segment in my training where I talk about, you know, some of the reasons why 12-step recovery doesn't work for everyone. And I always frame it in a way that is pretty like relaxed. I even have like a picture of my cat making a funny face to try to break the ice and no matter what people, there are still some people who take it really personal. Um, And this one guy like actually stood up and screamed, you know, Narcotics Anonymous saved my life and like walked out. So yeah, I was a little shaken from that, but I'm kind of used to it at this point. Like there's some folks who feel personally attacked um, when you bring up the reasons why 12 step doesn't work for everyone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We feel you. Yeah. Especially in like that, that setting and that recovery world is definitely the predominant mentality is 12 step. And even like us as like Buddhist recovery, we were, we were kind of people were looking at us and, and doing that. So I think like the concepts that you're talking about are definitely uh, different than the, than the mainstream recovery. When you're explaining like harm reduction to people, how do you explain that? Because I think the way that you explained it to us was really good. And then after that point, like during research, it it does become sort of confusing because it's a very like umbrella term for a lot of different things. But how do you view it? And like, how do you you describe it to people? Yeah, um, the listeners couldn't see this, but I mean, I had like the biggest smile on my face when Lacey was talking about, you know, how our conversation helped her frame like what recovery can look like. And so, you know, harm reduction is really just more of a compassionate approach that recognizes that any healthy change someone is willing to make is a good thing, you know, whether it's just cutting back on a substance. Um, It can also include abstaining. For some people, the best form of harm reduction is to abstain from all substances. But it's acknowledging that that is just not possible for everyone. There's going to be some people who are better off like utilizing a less harmful substance, uh, using less frequently, or using more in a a safer way, um, rather than abstinence being the one and only goal. For some people, it's just a bar too high, right? I mean, and not Mm -hmm. only... Is that true? But it's also one of the most evidence-based approaches that we have. It's a pragmatic approach. It's really accessible. When I was 18 years old, I went to outpatient uh, for my first time. And my counselor there said, you're an addict. You have a disease. There's no cure. You can't do any drugs or drink alcohol for your entire life. You know, and, and the only way to get better is for you to go in this church basement with these old white dudes, you know, find God, get a sponsor, et cetera. And needless to say, it didn't work for me. You know, I, if anything, it sort of gave me this excuse like, well, I have a disease. So, you know, here we go. Mm-hmm. Um, and that approach doesn't work well for everyone. Like I really firmly believe, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, but I also really think that if I, when I was 18, if someone had approached me and been like, Hey, check this out. Why don't we just work on, you know, staying safer if you are going to use drugs or, Hey, here's a mountain bike. There's some of us that go and like do this mountain biking thing together, you know, and, and it's a healthy activity that we do together. Like we talk about drugs and stuff or like, Hey, you want to learn how to meditate or do yoga? Like that's a thing too. Um, I just feel like harm reduction recognizes people's autonomy and how we're all different and have different needs. And it's just, a, it's a bigger, it's just a bigger place for us to all be and all have like our own, uh, our own goals and our own, you know, version of what 
a healthy life looks like. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wellness looks different for everyone. It's never going to be the same for me as it is for you. Yeah, it sounds like it's very, and we talk about this a lot on this podcast, which is just the idea of respecting the person to know it, to make decisions for themselves, as opposed to saying you have to do this or you're not successful, right? So it's like, putting the trust and respect in the individual. Um, and, it, is it, you know, I think this language of like addict or is very othering, right? It says you're this, which it, it doesn't sound very human, right? Um, and you can't make choices for yourself. You can't be trusted to make your own choices. So what you're saying sounds very humane. Yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is that we don't hear from 90% of the population that had a chaotic relationship with a substance mm-hmm. because I'd say almost everyone um, recognizes that this is a problem and they sort of just go on what we call natural recovery, which is that they just like kind of outgrow it or they go to therapy or we just don't hear from them because they don't identify as being part of this larger recovery community. You know, um, they were in their 20s and they developed like an unhealthy, um, chaotic relationship with a substance. They addressed it or they kind of grew out of it. You know, I love um, Maya Salvovitz talks about addiction being like a learning disorder, Mm -hmm. like something that we almost kind of outgrow or just learn to cope with and like get better at over time. You know, most of the most of the folks that develop an unhealthy relationship with a substance, like we don't hear from them. They're not on podcasts like they're not, you know, like on a stage with a microphone talking about recovery. They just like went about their lives. And that's true for a lot of my friends. Mm. A lot of people that I, I used um, drugs with when I was younger, they just sort of went about their lives. The ones that live to tell the tale. Like out of all my friends um, during that time in my life, like I'm the only one who identifies as being in any type of recovery process. That's so interesting. Can I ask you what kinds of drugs you were using? Sure. Heroin and cocaine. And the reason I ask is because heroin has this, like when I picture heroin, I picture anyone who comes off of it must be in recovery, you know? And I think a lot of people, that's why I asked that question because I wanted to like, make that clear is that group of people didn't all die. They necessarily, though, that's definitely something that happens. You, you, you are in recovery and your other friends stopped using. With Correct. Their own they methods. stopped using heroin and went about their lives and are lawyers and doctors and Indian chiefs. And you would never know the difference. And right. that's, that's a really common story, but we just don't hear from those people. And another thing we don't like to talk about is there are people out there who use heroin recreationally. You know, um, by not acknowledging that, it's it's really a missed opportunity to, you know, establish um, drug laws that make sense, figuring out a way to have a, a safe supply for the folks that are going to recreationally recreationally use opioids or for pain management. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we really need to, as a society, like come to terms with the fact that folks use all drugs recreationally you know, or for a uh, pain, whether it's emotional pain or, or physical pain. Um, and, and by pretending that it's just people who develop an unhealthy relationship or are so-called addicts, like that's just false. So why do you like what, I, there's a lot of things interesting that you said uh, that I related to. Like one is this concept of like labeling yourself as an addict and you can't have this. And like, I relate with that experience a lot because when I did have slips or relapses, it was just like, you know, I would go full tilt on those experiences a lot because like of that programming in my mind that, that this is poison. And if I take one sip, it's going to just, you know, make chaos in my system. And if I maybe didn't have that programming, maybe those things wouldn't have happened. But I guess I'm curious, like what identifies you as like a person in recovery versus these people that you're talking about that just kind of like grow grow out of it you know it's just words it's really just how a person chooses to see themselves and how they relate to the world you know um, I've struggled a lot with whether I still want to call myself a person in recovery because although I am you know I I do check all, all the boxes are checked in that area like I am in a process of wellness and I am in a process of you know, um, reducing harm in my life and um, a process of growing. And I no longer have a chaotic relationship with drugs and alcohol. You know, Lacey mentioned othering. And sometimes I think a person recovery can be really othering and, you know, um, almost presents this 
this place where I'm, I'm better than someone who is still chaotically using drugs. And, you know, for mm-hmm. some folks, um, it, it's just a term that represents uh, an old way of thinking that, you know, kind of contributes to that syndrome that you're just talking about, like, you know, uh, you can't do just one and one leads to the other. And, you know, this whole unraveling, like we never know what came first, the chicken or the egg. Mm -hmm. Is it because of the programming that somebody suddenly like went right back to their so-called drug of choice? Or um, is it because of, you know, their own personal um, genetics, you know, that we're taught to believe? Nobody really knows. Can you give some examples of what harm reduction looks like in real life, like some tangible examples of what, I know there are harm reduction clinics, for example, Um, you know, what, and we kind of have talked about it conceptually, what, you know, kind of grounded in in, in examples of what what someone could expect if they were going to go this route. Sure. Well, there's harm reduction drop-in centers, for example. So I, few summers ago, got to visit um, New York harm reduction educators up in Harlem and took a tour and met um, a lot of the staff there and hung out with them for half a day just to kind of see, you know, how they do things down there. Because I I live up in um, in the Catskills, like two hours north of New York City, and we don't have anything like that. And it's really detrimental. But so a harm reduction drop-in center is a place that you can come as you are. You can come high. You can come, you know, homeless. You can come however you are. Um, and have access uh, at this particular location to nurses who can help with wound care, who can help you um, connect with a doctor if you're interested in medication like Suboxone or Methadone or Vivitrol or, you know, any of the other medicines we have to help people who don't have access to a safe supplier at high risk of overdose. Um, you can get access to naloxone, um, get taught how to use it. There's also a bathroom you can use there. Um, that's monitored, you know, in case someone uh, decides to use drugs in there and experiences an overdose. There are showers you can use. There is laundry to do there. And then on the second floor, they have like a place for holistic health. So they've got like acupuncture and they do drum circles and massage therapy and sound baths and all this really amazing stuff. And there's literally no requirement. You can just walk in off the street, come for two days, leave for a week. You know, there's no requirement to like see a therapist unless you want to. Um, I forgot to mention that they also give out safe, um, uh, safer using equipment like uh, clean syringes and um, safer smoking kits, safer, safer snorting kits, like all the things to keep people safer uh, while they are in that stage of chaotic drug use or just recreational drug use um, as, a, as a public health measure, right? Just to keep human beings safer. Um, mm-hmm. People who use drugs experience horrific treatment by the medical community. So a lot of the time we rely on mutual aid just to kind of take care of each other. Mm -hmm. People get treated like crap when they go to the hospital for like, you know, um, an infected injection site, for example. So, you know, they, they suffer needlessly, um, but they can go to a place like uh, New York harm reduction educators and actually get care on the spot for a wound, no strings attached, you know, not Mm -hmm. like you don't have to come while you're in withdrawal and like, exhibit XYZ symptoms, or you don't have to, you know, have reached rock bottom or anything. It's just come as you are. Mm -hmm. Um, And the the other cool part of it is they're able to get involved too, as peers, if they want to sign up to get some training, Mm -hmm. um, they're not required to like uh, pass a drug screen or like, you know, pee in a cup or anything degrading like that. Um, The mantra there is just like, look, I, we get people use drugs, like people drink alcohol, but the staff doesn't come to work under the influence. So we, we expect that you won't either. Mm-hmm. And, and people respond really well to that. Like, oh, okay, I get it. Like I can use drugs before or after work, but I shouldn't be like, you know, inebriated on the job. Right. And it really helps people to see like value and worth in their life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, harm reduction in real time, just it, it it kind of just embraces people like as they are in that moment um, and doesn't try to change them. Mm-hmm. I guess like a question for me is like the, I mean, in my experience in recovery, it's always been these like programs that are like abstinence based programs. And that is like the eventual goal is like to be abstinent from whatever you're trying to, to, to get over with harm reduction. <laughs> is there a goal of that? 
ever? Or is it kind of like you can continue to do this and, you know, function in your life in a different sort of way? Um, like, how do people think about that? Are they going to continue using drugs forever? Or is there like a goal to eventually like stop using them? Um, everyone has different goals. You know, harm reduction really, really, really honors people's autonomy above all else. Like I would never, you know, tell you what you should or shouldn't be doing. Usually folks know uh, what they need, you know, and if we just ask them, um, they, they know what they need and they know what, what they need to accomplish that goal. Um, so there is no expectation over anyone um, in harm reduction that they're going to ever stop or um, get on medication. Um, the idea is that if you show someone compassion and love and dignity and respect, that they will naturally, you know, want to be healthier, uh, mm. want to, they, they'll see their lives as sacred if we give them any indication that it is. Mm. Yeah. How did you, how did you discover it yourself? Well, I guess just uh, over time, you know, based off my experience that I shared before, um, having gone through traditional treatment many, many times, um, having never been offered any alternative, um, it was always abstinence, abstinence, abstinence. You're an addict, you know, you're going to die an addict. You, you have this disease, it's incurable, like this is the only way, 12 step, 12 step. I had tried like medication, I had tried inpatient treatment. And eventually I did, you know, find uh, a recovery process that worked for me for many years. But through my work as a peer, through my training as a peer, I was introduced to the concept of harm reduction incrementally. And at first, probably nine or 10 years ago, at first, I, I my mind was blown. Like I was so defensive. I was like, what? You know, um, in the Recovery Coach Academy, which is uh, part of the training that we received to get our certification, you know, there's a there's a saying in there: "You're in recovery when you say you are." Yeah, right. That's cool. And when I heard that, I immediately got so defensive. I was like, "No, you're not. You're in recovery when you have a sponsor and you and you host <laughs> meetings and you do your steps five times and you have sponsees." Like I was person, I felt personally attacked by that, and it really affected me you know, I probably didn't even sleep that night. Like I was thinking about it so much, but it sort of planted a seed in my head. And over the years, um, working in this field and just like reflecting on my personal experiences, that New York harm reduction educators, uh, drop-in facility is in East Harlem. When I was living in East Harlem, if I, I, at that time I was on methadone, I was living alone. I basically like went to work, got my methadone, came home and like cried myself to sleep every night. I was absolutely miserable. I was still using other drugs, like chaotically drinking. Like I, if I had known there was somewhere else I could have been, but a 12 step meeting, if I had known there was a place like Nairi, I mean, I left there in tears that day. Mm. If I had known there was a place like that, where I could have dropped in and taken a yoga class or gotten some acupuncture, or just sat and talked to someone who would have like, given me like love and compassion, respect for like how I was choosing to live my life, giving me purpose. I mean, that could have been a game changer for me. You know, I ended up um, after that, I ended up going back out and like having a really unhealthy relationship with substances for many years before I finally, you know, I was able to achieve abstinence. So all those experiences kind of led me down this path and I've just been incrementally learning more about it, having the opportunity to practice it with others, having the opportunity to, um, watch people like have that aha moment, like Lacey, like, wow, you know, the way I feel about my recovery is valid. You know, the fact that cannabis helps me sleep and helps me with my anxiety, that is valid. You know, I really am still in recovery, even though my back was hurting and I took that Percocet seven years ago. Right. You know, people really like beat themselves up over these little things. Um, and so it's just been like a, a series of, you know, like aha moments through my work and through my personal uh, wellness journey that have just gotten me to where I am today, um, thinking that it's basically probably just cast the widest net towards helping people see a, an opportunity for wellness in their lives. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really amazing. Like what you're saying about like just treating people compassionately, because you do have this like stigma in society, like drugs are bad. And if you're doing drugs, like you're a bad person person right and you kind of feel like that too even with me like when like this concept of like sobriety dates like I've always had like an issue 
with that, it becomes really hard. It becomes this thing that's like hanging over you. And then you're like, oh, if I took this like sleeping pill or whatever, does that, does that ruin my, like what, you know, you start like questioning all these things that you're doing, you know, and that becomes like so much pressure. I worked last year for a whole year in an absolutely amazing low threshold uh, buprenorphine program, uh, suboxone program in a family planning clinic in a rural county up here mm-hmm. with some radical nurse practitioners who were watching their patients, you know, drop dead left and right of overdoses. And we're just sick of watching them and doing nothing. There was no um, suboxone providers in the whole county that didn't require you to like go to outpatient or pay out of pocket. And, you know, people were dying. Um, so they hired me to come in and, and implement peer support into this program. They had never worked with um, addiction medicine. And, you know, we're just kind of going in green, but we're like just really wanted to um, make this work. And inevitably, we would have people whose sponsors would tell them, you have to get off Suboxone because you're not clean. Mm-hmm. I mean, sponsors literally giving people medical advice. Oh and I was, God. I would have these young people come in crying to me, like, I need to get off of this. How quickly can I get off of this? My sponsor says I'm not clean, that I can't have a commitment, that I shouldn't speak in meetings. I mean, and I would just sit there and look at them and be like, you're clean. Like you're, you're good. There is nothing wrong with you. You, you have chosen an evidence-based treatment for you know, something in your life that wasn't beneficial to you anymore. You're not doing anything wrong. It's perfectly legal. You know, if that's what your sponsor is telling you, like, I'm not supposed to give you advice, but if if it were me, I I would, I would ask a few other people what they think, you know? So there is this like immense stigma um, around folks who are choosing things other than abstinence in those circles. And it's, it's really frustrating um, watching people, you know, make these judgments, these harsh judgments on themselves. Yeah. Which only makes you want to hurt yourself, right? Like that's the whole point is that we're trying not to hurt ourselves and trying not to kill ourselves. And if you make someone feel like shit, they're going to want to do that. You know, can you explain what Suboxone does just for people who don't know? And I just think it'd be helpful to have that. Yeah, sure. Sure. So Suboxone partially um, fills the opioid receptor so that people don't um, experience physical withdrawals Mm -hmm. from opioids. So once someone has developed a dependency on opioids, um, you know, through heroin or any other opioid, like uh, pain medication, Oxycontin, Oxycodone, Percocet, et cetera, you know, they have a physical dependence and um, can't function without it on a daily basis. And right now, our drug, suppo- our drug supply is poisoned. You know, fentanyl is in the drug supply. Yeah. Um, back when I was using heroin, you could afford to have a relapse or a recurrence, right? And make it back, you know, to uh, whatever your recovery group is. Say it's like, oh, I had a relapse. Well, now folks are overdosing and dying because fentanyl is killing people. So Suboxone um, gives folks a chance to not have to go through these horrific withdrawals, stabilize their lives, um, get in to see a doctor, um, go back to work, you know, raise their children, do all the things, and they never have to experience, you know, the gut-wrenching pain of, of withdrawal. And some people use it to detox just to taper off of the heroin or fentanyl. And some people stay on it for years or however long they want. It, it should be, isn't always, but should be a self-directed pro- you know, process mm-hmm. of what somebody wants. Mm-hmm. And so are there... Are there harm reduction meetings? Are there any meetings that are focused on this, uh, this philosophy? Yes, yes, yes. I'm very glad you asked that question. So I'm really, really excited um, to be able to host a weekly meeting called Harm Reduction Works. Cool. Um, we have a website. It's harmreduction.works. And it was uh, founded by Albie Park and Jess Tilly over in Massachusetts. And it's a fully scripted mutual aid support meeting for anyone who's interested in harm reduction for any reason. Hmm. Um, It can be people who use drugs. It can be people in recovery, people working in the field, family members, anyone who's interested or curious about learning about harm reduction. It's a really beautiful thing. Um, It has changed my life. It came in my life at a time where I was really missing that sense of community. You know, I, I had started kind of veering away from some of the support meetings that I was going to and just really missing um, that the bonding with other humans. I heard about it on a podcast 
And I took a trip out to Massachusetts to attend a meeting. There was at the time, there was only the one meeting in the country um, started by Albie and Jess. And uh, I just left again, like in tears, just totally moved beyond belief by what I'd experienced there. And I, I stayed for like an hour afterwards talking with um, the founders. And by the end of it, I was like, I want to start a meeting. Like, how do you guys feel about it? And they're like, we feel really good about it. Okay. So we kept in touch. And um, by November of last year, I'd started the, the first meeting outside of the original meeting in North America in Catskill, New York. It was an in-person meeting. Um, we, we were meeting on Mondays at noon and still are meeting Mondays at noon on Zoom. Cool. Um, and we used to have, you know, food and all that stuff, but now we don't have food. We're just on Zoom. Um, but it's been such a beautiful experience. And now we actually have harm reduction works for families. So a specific meeting for family members who are looking to learn more about harm reduction. That is so cool. That is really cool. What can, what can someone expect if they're personally, you know, interested in it from themselves, their own drug use or their own use of any kind of substance? Well, they can expect to learn more about harm reduction. They can expect to have a healthy community to check in with um, mm-hmm. before just jumping into that experience. You know, um, some, some compassionate and kind individuals who are not going to judge them for their curiosity about a substance. Um, if they choose to go through with using a substance, they can experience a community that's going to give them feedback if they ask for it. So harm reduction works is a little different from other mutual aid support meetings and is that in that you can ask for feedback and you can give feedback. Mm-hmm. So, you know, let's say you just shared something. I could say, hey, Lacey, do you mind if I give you some feedback? And you could be like, nope. Or you can say yes. And then I could say, hey, might I suggest next time instead of injecting that, you could try like snorting it. You know, it's a lot safer. There's fentanyl in the drug supply. It's really dangerous right now. So it's a group where you're not going to get advice, but you might get some some feedback um, and get an opportunity to connect with other people. I've seen folks come in, you know, from 12 step and, and just level with people and be like, listen, I've been in 12 step five years. I want to have a beer. Like I need to talk about this. I might do it. In fact, I'm probably doing it on New Year's Eve and I'm going to check in with everybody and let, let you know how it went, mm-hmm. you know? So it's a way for people to feel like they're not just like going off of the deep end into the dark side. You know, there's still love. There's still, there's still fellowship. There's still community. You know, you don't have to just embark on this lonely mission just because you have changed your mind about what recovery looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. One thing that I found interesting, like over the summer when the protests were happening and there's a lot of social justice movements, I heard a lot of things about like the war on drugs and harm reduction uh, as like human rights issues. And it kind of comes back to like what you were saying about like treating people compassionately. Like I know there's some countries like Portugal where they don't throw people in prison right away for drug use. They actually help, you know, give them therapy. Um, and I saw on your website too, you would like one of your posts was about Nancy Reagan and just say no. And kind of like, that's the culture of America and how we viewed drugs for a long, long time. I think it's really cool that you're talking about these things. Meetings are happening. Like, What's your feeling about that? Like, do you think the culture is shifting around this? Like, how do you think, like, in America, we're viewing this, like, movement of harm reduction? Oh, for sure. I think that the the pendulum is starting to swing finally. Um, the, The policy that was passed in Washington is absolutely amazing. I can't even explain how excited I am. Um, you brought up Portugal and Portugal is, is kind of the model that they, that they used in order to write their policy. And unfortunately though, there's also something called the Portugal paradox, right? So they decriminalized drug possession in Portugal, which drastically reduced overdoses in the country. They went from having one of the highest overdose rates in all of the, all of Europe. And now they have one of the lowest and what they did is they decriminalized all drugs. And instead of going to prison, like you said, for small possession, the person can access treatment, therapy, safe supply, you know, methadone program, et cetera. But the Portugal, Portugal paradox is that they didn't provide a safe supply. So they do decriminalize all drugs, but drugs are still illegal. So the supply is still deadly. Um, mm-hmm. So what we're hoping for 
And by we, I mean most harm reductionists and most people that work in drug policy in America, it's not just decriminalize drugs, but eventually have access to a safer supply. Mm. People have been wanting to use opioids since the beginning of time. You know, people should be able to have access to making a cup of opium poppy tea instead of having to go buy fentanyl that's going to kill them. Mm. And this is the only way to end the overdose crisis. People are never going to stop wanting um, relief from their pain. It's never going to happen. You know, we know that um, the iron law of prohibition, you make something illegal, all it does is make it stronger. You know, back in the day, people Mm -hmm. were dying of bathtub gin because the government tried to make alcohol illegal. We see how that went. I visited the Prohibition Museum. I went on a road trip, like when COVID was on kind of a lull. I stopped in Savannah, Georgia and went to the Prohibition Museum. And it's just really wild that we tried this with alcohol. We saw that it was an epic fail, but instead we doubled down on the war on drugs just a a few, like a a couple decades later. And we wonder why we're experiencing a fentanyl crisis. It's the same thing we did back then. Exact same thing. Right. And but so you mentioned the, uh, the, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to make the point of obviously the drug war also has to do with um, systemic racism and putting a lot of black people, black men in jail. Yeah. It's a racist war and, yeah. and um, chasing the scream. Johan Hari's book, Chasing the Scream, gives a very articulate look into that whole racist history. Um, and police are far more likely, as we all know, to arrest someone for drug possession based off the color of their skin. Yeah. Plus that book's amazing. I love that book. I love him as an author. I like all his, all his he stuff. He comes up um, a lot on here. <laughs> yeah. Um, they, but so you mentioned there's legislation in Washington. Oh, um, in or- yeah. Washington state. Yeah. Washington state. Um, they, they decriminalize um, possession, just kind of similar to the Portugal model. It just, just happened. So I really can't comment on if it's being implemented right, or if it's going to be wildly successful, but I imagine you're going to see a huge, huge drop in their um, overdose deaths as mm-hmm. a result. And then I hope more states will will follow suit. Wow. Yeah, because I read that they they um, they legalized psilocybin mushrooms, right? As part of that, yeah. it was a big kind of big news all around in Washington. Yes. Yeah. We hope, we hope though, that it's not just the uh, so-called plant medicines that are able to experience um, drug policy reform, but an access to a safe supply in general, because we know that people are, are choosing to u- use all substances, not just, not just plant medicines. Mm-hmm. You know, there's going to be folks who are still going to want to do cocaine. They're still going to want to do opioids, mm-hmm. whether it's illegal or not. Um, by, but by keeping them illegal, all we're doing is promoting fentanyl because fentanyl is small. It's easy to ship through the mail. And it's just going to be the gold standard until we give people an alternative supply and people are going to continue to die. I guess like a question for me with an alternative supply, like uh, I get and this is just like my, I don't understand this, but uh, methadone, that's like prescribed as like an alternative for opioids. Is that sort of like alternative supply or like, are you talking about a different sort of substance? And like, why isn't methadone like people, it seems like people don't like being on methadone. Well, they don't like being on methadone because our methadone policies in America are are absurd. Um, In order to access methadone, which is by the way, the gold standard for opioid use disorder is the um, most effectively studied. It it has the the most successful results of any any drug we currently have, any solution. People are far less likely to die of an overdose if they're on methadone. But in Mm -hmm. order to be on methadone, you have to go to a clinic and wait in line in a degrading way where everybody knows you're going to walk into this clinic day after day to get your supply until you earn the privilege of having a weekend take-home bottle. And then from there, they start to allow you to come less frequently. But it's a really degrading and humiliating process. You're asked to pee mm-hmm. in a cup in front of someone, like some kind of you know criminal. And it's, it's absolutely insane because if you're taking methadone for chronic pain, you can just get it from your physician. But if you're taking methadone because you're, you know, getting off heroin, which could could or couldn't be for chronic pain anyway, right. you have yeah. to go to a methadone clinic. And there aren't a lot of methadone clinics in rural areas. They're mostly in big cities. The one in rural areas have huge wait lists. 
So that's why you don't see a lot of people wanting to get on methadone. It's just a humiliating and ridiculously absurd process. There's no reason why it should be like that. Um, Mm -hmm. But when I talk about safe supply, although I would like to see, I mean, we must do better with access to medications like methadone and suboxone. We we absolutely have to do better. I mean, that's low-hanging fruit. That's something we could change tomorrow if we wanted but when I say safe safe supply, I'm talking more about like how um, in Canada and Switzerland and a few other countries, people can actually go and get prescription heroin, and they can they can go like like a dignified person, pick up their prescription, inject it, snort it, whatever they prefer, and go on about their lives. And studies show that when people have access to a safe supply, they actually choose to use less. Mm. They may start off going, oh, you're allowed to go twice a day. Well, I'm going to go twice a day to get it. After a while, in that same location, they have access to social workers, to therapists, to doctors, to all the supports they need to make healthier changes, to harm reduction, to peers. They start to want to use less because they start to feel more connected. They're actually like having interactions with a healthy person. Um, They're starting to feel better about themselves. They might want to use a little less. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe now they want to try methadone instead of injecting anymore. They don't want their arms to look like that anymore because now they're interested in getting a job, you know? So um, that's what I, I mean when I say safer supply or yeah. like, you know, people being allowed to grow their own coca leaves to make coca tea or, you know, poppy tea or whatever. People have had the desire to be altered since the beginning of time. Like that's <laughs> not going to go away. Like just by making something illegal, it doesn't mean that people are are going to stop. Like we have to give people a way to do this in a safer way, or we're just going to continue like watching people die. It's that it's that simple. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for for explaining that. It's really interesting. Like America, like we have this like puritanical roots. Like that's how the country was founded. But then you also have like freedom and like people should have the right to be free and do what they want to do. So it's interesting. Like when you bring up these other countries and like, you're able to do that freely, it's just sounds like there's yeah. Different models that we can employ here that would have a a lot better benefits. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You talk about the puritanical roots, Um, you know, like uh, the 12 step programs have similar roots and then you have folks who, become abstinent or sober and next thing you know they're like teetotalers right they're like oh drugs are bad you shouldn't be taking that like (laughs) it's like really dude uh like two years ago you were like (laughs) charlie sheen over there what what happened you know so Uh, like a lot of the time it's like the the recovery community that takes the harshest stance on on drug policy reform yes yeah they definitely do yeah. And I think, you know, with my own recovery, I think what I kind of learned and through the, I think the Buddhist path was like to not reach for something, right. Is like stay within myself and, um, not reach for something because I basically, if you think of three jewels, but you know, it's all, it's all here. Like I can sit through that discomfort, but I'm also a privileged white person. You know, I do have anxiety. I've experienced depression, but I haven't experienced the things that potentially in trauma and major trauma that can bring you all of that pain and hurt. I'm trying to kind of, you know, there's part of me that really understands it, harm reduction. And there's part of me that is the ultimate goal should be sobriety, should be sobriety. So like I am holding both of those things. Right. And I'm like, I totally understand, but I also the Buddhist training in me is like, oh, but everyone, you know, like, I'm not going to judge you for not being sober, but that's really the kind of the state, right? That that's like, like that I want to attain, right? Can you kind of, because I know you also have that, can you like have that conversation with me? Because I think I would just like to kind of work through those thoughts more. Totally, totally. And I 100% understand where you're coming from. And I think a lot of people struggle with that. And I think it's totally normal and natural. I think that I have the unique benefit of having watched it happen, Mm -hmm. like over and over again, of watching someone coming in off the street, literally unhoused, literally like they smell when they walk in the room, they're crying, they haven't slept or eaten in days. Um, they're hundred pounds soaking wet. I see people walk in like this and I see what happens when they're met with compassion, when they're met 
with 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 these with these philosophies with this concept and they're offered whatever it is that they're willing to do incrementally right i've seen what a difference that makes like i've seen that same person you know stop injecting iv drugs get stable on their mental health meds get on um buprenorphine or methadone get housing get a job like get a partner you know like get a hobby like i've watched them go from like you know one way to complete other way and it wasn't through abstinence it was just through incremental change and and it stopped it stopped at a place where like so one person i have in mind you know it stopped at a place where he was still drinking occasionally uh using cannabis daily but taking his mental health meds every day. This person suffered from, you know, um, uh, schizophrenia and had like a really difficult life um, and was chaotically using IV drugs. And I saw this person go from the way I described earlier to having housing, like taking, taking mental health meds, you know, coming to all his appointments, smiling, laughing, you know, mm-hmm. like sometimes he would come in smelling like pot, right? But like his whole life had changed and it wasn't, Absence was never the goal and may never be the goal. But this person, I no longer have to worry. Like I used to worry so bad when it was cold out, you know, if um, if he was going to literally freeze to death. And now I know that at least, you know, he's like, he's housed and he's happy and he, feel, he feels fulfilled in his life. So I think that since I've had the benefit of actually seeing what this approach means to people and what it does to people and how um, it takes folks who probably we're never going to embrace uh, help from an absence-based mindset to Mm -hmm. being willing to take a look, to at least like take a look and see like, wow, maybe there are some decisions I could make that could make my life a little bit happier, a little Mm -hmm. bit healthier, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And if you don't make absence the goal, then someone is like a lot more willing to engage in like an incremental process of change. Um, and there's some people whose trauma is so great and whose emotional pain, physical pain are so great that they don't want to be abstinent. Like yeah. they're just in excruciating emotional pain or excruciating physical pain or a combination of both. And they have no intention of ever, ever, ever living with that. Um, and I think that's their choice. I mm-hmm. really do. Like I've met enough people um, who, you know, struggle with like PTSD from like, you know, combat. Like I've met some veterans, you know, who really struggle with PTSD, PTSD who are utilizing cannabis, but have put down all their other chaotic use, or they might just use something occasionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think until you like see it in real time happening, it's really hard to imagine, especially when we're just leaning on our own lived experience. You know, I, I was never able to like casually, um, utilize like harder drugs, but I've seen people that do. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I guess I I have the, the ability to, to like watch it, watch the example happen in real time. And and it's helped me really embrace, embrace this philosophy. Yeah, no. And I can definitely, I understand it and I embrace it. And just the way you described it makes it, it's, it's stepping towards, I always struggle with the word happiness. It's making steps towards, what's a good word? Like wellness, like what wellness looks like for them. Right, right, right. Like some comfort too. Yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Nick, do you have anything to add? I I think you're really cool, Megan. You just have like a really big heart. It's really nice. I'm curious, like this, like the certification, the peer recovery uh, support specialist, how did you, how do you, well, how did you go about doing that? And then kind of like, what's the difference between that and like a therapist and like different, like, you know, a sponsor, you know, those sorts of things that, that people work with? Yeah, sure. So in New York state, the certification is called certified recovery peer advocate or SERPA. Um, it's called something different in almost every state. So it's really confusing. There is a national certification um, called Peer Recovery Support Specialist. And basically, it's just a, it's a set of training that you take, uh, different trainings. And then there is a test. And then there is, you know, I have to keep certifying like every year, every two years, depending on their certification. Um, there's also amount of, a, an amount of supervision hours you have to get signed off on um, that can be like volunteer or through working. 
and there's ethics. Um, you know, so there's a lot of similarities between, like you said, like uh, a therapist. I don't have to have a master's degree. Um, my lived experience is the only thing that's important. Mm. Um, as someone who used drugs or someone who's in recovery, or you could even be like a family member or just anyone that identifies as having had an experience, you know, navigating the challenges and, and the stress and all the, all the hoops you have to jump through to help someone like through these processes. Yeah. And then there's a lot of differences. So a sponsor, you know, my definition of a sponsor is someone who takes you through the 12 steps of a 12 step program, Right. I, in my role as a peer, I would never, ever do that. And if I did, I would not be staying in my lane whatsoever. That's way out of my scope. Like if someone came to, like if I was working with someone as a peer and they expressed an interest in, in working the 12 steps, it would be my job as a peer to say, okay, hey, let's take a look at what meetings you have in your area. And, you know, if you're looking for a sponsor, like, you know, what worked for me is I raised my hand and said, you know, I'm looking for a sponsor you know, so kind of just like modeling, like what behavior would help them achieve the goal that they're looking for, as opposed to like doing it with them is Mm -hmm. more, is more the role of a peer. I'm more of just a sounding board. There's a lot of similarities between um, peers and like life coaches in some ways, you know, I help people Mm -hmm. identify healthy goals and like help them figure out what actions they need to take in order to achieve those goals. And really just, I'm kind of just someone that's like in their corner, you know, just like helping move things along and um, offering support and, uh, you know, positive reinforcement. Yeah. I think it's really cool. Actually, like when I was going through my like outpatient rehab, like we had psychiatrists and we also had like people who were like, there's like a chaplain there too. And, but like the number one thing in our groups, like people wanted to know, have you like had fucked up experiences in your life with drugs and alcohol you know that was like a thing that people and sometimes you didn't know if this like the psychiatrist or psychologist actually like went through that same experience but they're trying to like lead you in something so it's like that's a really cool concept of having a peer because that was like the number one thing that people were always looking for like they wanted to talk to someone who's been through what they're going through you know yeah same yeah when I was in treatment it was the same thing and that's the interesting thing about drug and alcohol counselors is they're not supposed to really self-disclose right yeah we are we have full liberties to do so we we do have some training around when is appropriate and when isn't how to do it you know so it doesn't just become like unhealthy But yeah, that's like one of the cool differences. Like I'm able to just like sort of walk next to someone. It's, there's not a hierarchy. There's no like big eye, little you, like I see them eye to eye and I really do. Like you're just another human being who's trying to make some changes and, you know, maybe I can help, maybe I can't, but if I can, I'll help you find somebody who can. Um, It's just, it's a lot more low key. There's no, um, there's no barriers. It should be really, really no barriers to being able to work with a peer. And I really liked that, you know, when I would go to treatment, like inevitably by the end, you know, because I'm really chatty. Like if you haven't noticed yet, I'm like really (laughs) talkative. I'm not shy. Like I'm pretty like, you know, friendly with um, strangers. Like I can hold the conversation. So by the end of like, every time I went to rehab, I would have a counselor be like, you know, you should really uh, get your case act. You should really become a drug counselor. And I was always like, no way, dude. Cause I, I didn't, I didn't really like that relationship. I didn't like that thing. That's like, I know that you used to do drugs, but you're not going to tell me like, you're just going to pretend to be helping me to school or whatever. But like, I know, (laughs) you know, I didn't like that. I really, um, I just wasn't digging it. So I had zero interest in this field until I heard about this new like peer movement. And then I became, I became interested because I just think it's a, a really unique opportunity for me to take like my fuck ups and turn it into Um, a way to like make other people feel less judged. Like, because I just felt like, you know, a piece of shit all the time. Like I just Mm -hmm. couldn't do anything right. So I feel like I have this ability now to make people feel just a a little less shitty about their situation. Yeah, it's amazing. So if someone was exploring this uh, and maybe they're not down with like traditional like rehab and, you know, uh, 12-step programs and could they get in touch with somebody like like yourself? and like work one-on-one with you, how would, how would somebody, you know, go about doing that? Yeah. So, I mean, to literally work with me right now, I'm only working uh, with the app. So that would be tough, but to have access to a peer, to peer support, 
Um, there's lots of ways to do that. Um, each each place in the country, they, there's usually like recovery community organizations, RCOs we call them, or recovery community outreach centers that have that are staffed with peers that are available for free. Um, you can also go to unity.org um, and access the uh, the peers that are working um, nationally. Um, and we also have you know the seven meetings a day thing where you can get peer support on there. Um, but there's there's lots of recovery community outreach centers throughout the country who have peer support and also recovery coaches and also like drop-in centers like New, New York harm reduction educators mm-hmm. where you have peers that can provide with, you know, with um, safer, safer use supplies and, you know, all the things that, that they have there. So there's lots of ways to get connected to peers right now. That's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah. I think it is like interest, like the question, like, I mean, obviously this podcast is called Sober Company oh, and we're yeah. both like <laughs> all about, I mean, even like in our, in the Buddhist like program, like the fifth precept is like, no intoxicants. It's very like clear about that, you know? Yeah. Like, I don't know, just through the process of doing this, like, I know I've changed. I, I think I can speak for Lacey too, like her, like her concept of these things. Cause I think like, even at first you were kind of like worried about like, oh, if you do this, like it's going to lead to this. And, you know, hopefully it, that's like the big worry of people. It's like you do this one thing and it might spiral out of control into like. And it might. Where you it might, could you know? still. <laughs> yeah, I, I have. Yeah. I've been abstaining for alcohol. This is my 10th year. I, I've been abstaining um, from alcohol because I still have concerns that if I drink, I might want to do coke. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. I still have I still have um, a pretty healthy fear um, of, of certain substances for me. So, you know, like I said, like abstinence is, is not, is in the spectrum. Like abstinence is a part of harm reduction. There's, there are some people that just find that, you know, certain substances are not for them, but you know, like I've been on the medical cannabis program in New York state for almost two years now, and I haven't put a needle in my arm or anything, you know? Um, yeah. it's been like medicine. It's helpful for me. Um, and I, I was taught in my, you know, 12-step group that that was going to lead me down a slippery slope and, you know, uh, one would lead to another or I'd be using it, I'd be abusing it or misusing it. And, you know, I barely use it. Like, it is, you know, it wasn't like, yeah. oh my gosh, I'm going to be stoned all the time. It's like, eh. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When I was like, when I was living in California, I got a medical marijuana card too. It was funny when you were talking about like how, you make something legal and like it kind of like just tapers off. And there was this actually like this whole rush of like going to see a drug dealer and buying drugs. And this is this like secret thing. And then when it became something you just went to a store to buy, it was kind of like yeah. lame. Like, you know, like I was just kind of like, this isn't like as fun anymore. There's like this whole aspect of the use that was tied up with doing something that you weren't supposed to do, you know? Yeah. And I don't really doubt fun. that with, with the de- uh, the federal legalization of cannabis, which I really hope that we're going to get done soon, I don't I don't doubt that the there'll be an uptick in adolescents yeah. misusing cannabis, having horrible consequences, stunting their brain development, etc. Because I do think any drug is bad for the adolescent brain. Like I don't think that's a good thing, um, mm-hmm. but I think it'll taper up, taper down a bit. Like I think, you know, you'll see mass reduction in incarceration of black and brown folks. And I think you will see some negative stuff too. But I think, like you said, the novelty will wear off and it'll just become normal. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, you don't see like hordes of teenagers, like waiting outside of every single bar, trying to, trying to get sneak in and get a drink. Like, you know, the novelty will wear off. Like it'll just become (laughs) a thing. Yeah, totally. Like in France, it's not like because they can drink at a certain age. It's all these like wasted teenagers everywhere. At least I haven't witnessed that. Yeah, yeah no, actually like I because I lived in Europe for a little while and the way they drink is like, you know, they drink differently than like, I, I this is just a very stereotypical statement, but I feel like Americans like binge drink a lot more. Yeah. Than Europeans do. We're you excessive know? in all fronts. Yes. That's yeah. totally, <laughs> and actually, totally I, I heard on NPR on this program that I quote now all the time, which is that binge drinking came from po- prohibition because people, because the party could be shut down at any time, the cops could mm. come. And because it was illegal, you drank really fast. 
Yeah. And, and, yeah. and that the same thing goes for, for folks that are injecting drugs, right? They're mm-hmm. so worried like that at any moment, someone is going to walk in. So they push, they push things down really fast. They don't give them, mo- if people have time, they will take a, a, a safety dose first of whatever it is they're using. Like, you know, they'll, they'll just like shoot a tiny bit to make sure, okay, I'm good. And then push the rest down. But when people, we know when people are under duress and they think the cops are coming any minute, they're in a huge rush to, to consume the substance and they put themselves at, you know, much higher risk. So that makes a lot of sense that I hadn't heard that, but it makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. It is, has been refreshing just getting alternative opinions to like my introduction to this whole thing was like AA and then it was like recovery Dharma. And then just like understanding what there's like a whole wide world of things and it's not, it doesn't have to be like this. You know, you chart your own path as a person, this is your journey. And you know, it's really cool hearing about these things. Yeah, I had the same same experience. I hey. had been um, in an abstinence-based recovery process for um, nine years. And um, I, my whole recovery was oriented around uh, physical, physical, physical activity. Um, you know, also meditation and all those things. But um, I was a trail runner and I was running these like ridiculous races where you pay money to run uphill until your toenails fall off. And like, yeah. you know, you like, Do you run ultra marathons? I was, yes, basically doing really? that. And okay. um, I'm like super into that right now. So <laughs> yeah, so I was doing that and everybody knew me as like, oh, Megan, she runs, she hikes, she climbs mountains. Yeah. Like, I have a sister who lives in Colorado. So every time I went out West, I would like climb a 14er and like take a picture of myself on the top and cry because I was so moved by how far I've come in life. And it was this really great metaphor, you know, and then all of a sudden I started experiencing pain in my body. Like I started developing um, arthritis and having this like total just like moment of like now what like now who am I you know like I can't do these things anymore my neck hurts all the time I'm in pain all the time I have like a back problem now I have this um weird hip thing like I haven't run in like uh, almost a year and a half you know and so I think running was an exercise and lifting weights and all those things were um keeping me you know mentally healthy like I didn't have to take antidepressants because I was like so active and also meditating and, you know, meditating sucks when your like neck is killing you the whole time, you know, yeah. all the things that I had found that were making me, you know, this like model citizen, a recovery advocate, you know, like I would stand up on stages and, you know, tell my story and like, you know, everybody just saw me as this, you know, um, sort of, you know, Phoenix rising from the ashes story, yeah. which is really common in the recovery community. Yeah. Oh yeah. I suddenly like just couldn't, couldn't do those things anymore. And it was really dark for a while. It was really tough for me. I, um, I suffered. I'm, I did the whole martyrdom thing for a long time, you know, and then finally, um, I decided to try the, uh, medical marijuana card after a lot of deliberation, a lot of like stress, a lot of people doubting that it was a good idea for me. It was very anxiety producing, but so far, so good. It hasn't been, I'm not going to say it was like a miracle cure for my arthritis. It, rep- it provides me with some relief at night. I can sleep. It's helpful. I'm still in a lot of pain, but it was, it was, it was tough. And harm reduction works really gave me that community to help me, you know, feel like I'm a part of something again, even though like I do have substances in my life. Just really found this like supportive community in the harm reduction world that helped me give my recovery process or wellness process like a true north again because I was feeling just like really lost and alone yeah yeah that's um, really cool yeah no thanks for sharing that that's like uh wow that's like incredible story I mean it's your life story but I do like you know it is a thing like I find like a lot of like recovery people are into like endurance activity activities for something and like I, don't, I really like Rich Roll. Like I follow him Me a lot. Me too. Oh, yeah, like, are you kidding? I was obsessed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But he's also like in recovery and like, you know, started doing this thing. But it's like, that's his identity, right? And it's like, Yeah, and it wow. was mine it's too like, for a while. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, it's, it's tough. But I think it's something that a lot of us experience, like, you know, that have these really public recovery identities. Mm. Um, and then when your recovery doesn't look the same anymore, you have a 
crisis of identity, right? Like, yeah. am I in recovery? Am I still um, worthy of being a role model? Like, am I still worthy of this profession? You know, we ask ourselves all these questions, but by recognizing that there's like many, many ways of, of getting better, many paths to wellness, you know, makes it okay to be to be who you are, as long as, you know, you feel good about it and you feel healthy and capable to live your life, you know, it's, it's okay. Totally. That's beautiful. Well, thank you for the work you do. And thank you for telling us about it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. All right. That's it for this week. Thanks for hanging out with Nick, Megan, and I. If you want to check out the recovery app Megan was talking about, go to weconnectrecovery.com. And for harm reduction meetings, go to harmreduction.works. Just put that into your browser, harmreduction.works. Also, this will all be in the show notes, including everything else Megan name checked. And what else? Please support us on Patreon. We'd really love it if you did the work that we're doing. It's patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash sober company. Uh, you can find us on social media at Sober Co Podcast. Our website is sober.company. Sober, yeah, sober.company. Forgot it there for a second. Um, uh, please rate us five stars. You know, yay. Share with your friends and family. Our music is by the da- talented John Tessier, courtesy of Said So Sounds. Um, that's it. I hope the three of us were good company for you. Have a happy new year. Nick and I are going to do a new year's episode. This may be the first time he's hearing about it. But um, <laughs> <laughs> until then, uh, happy new year. You ready for the music? Yes.